Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined, as usual, by Terry Fakes for our second-to-last Revelation Questions. This is Revelation Questions number 12, and next Wednesday, or I guess this upcoming Wednesday, is going to be the final lesson of this series. We only have one more Revelation Questions podcast after this one that you're listening to now. So if you had any questions that you haven't gotten to ask yet, send them in. That'll be the last uh, Friday Revelation episode. This has been good, though, Cole, to be able to have a little time and to be able to discuss with you some of the questions we got in a little more detail, because in the context of an hour class, you can answer a lot of questions, but obviously you can't go into the depth that you want on some of them. So this has been a neat experiment, and I uh, it's been great for me to be able to talk in more depth about some of these questions. Definitely. I think this has really added a lot to the uh, series that you've taught by taking some longer explanations and addressing mm-hmm. questions that people have. It's, it's like an appendix right. to an all, already very good series. So we've got two questions today. Uh, both of them are very interesting questions. And they deal broadly with this end section of Revelation, the millennial reign of Christ, the judgment, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, the first question is one I hadn't thought a lot about until this person asked this question, but it's really interesting. And I don't know that we'll be able to answer everything about it, but it's something that is really thought provoking. How have the views of the end times influenced culture? Uh, Maybe to expand on that a little bit, how, how do different visions of how revelation is going to play out, influence the way that we engage with culture now? This is a really, really insightful question. It is a very insightful question, and it's the timing is good, and it comes out of our study of Revelation chapter 20, and the first 10 verses are about basically the thousand-year reign of Christ. And if you do it in a chronologically linear way, you have the second coming of Christ in chapter 19, Armageddon, then you have a thousand-year reign, and then you have judgment on the second half of chapter 20 and on into eternity. But the millennial views, I I would say, Cole, I'll give you two examples that are just really standout examples. Let me start with postmillennialism. Quick reminder, postmillennial says the second coming of Christ will be post or after the thousand year reign. What does that mean? It means that we're in the church age right now and we're out preaching the gospel as Jesus told us and that that gospel is going to be more and more successful Think of it like Jesus said, the gospel is leaven in a big loaf of dough, the the world, the earth. And as we preach and preach, it starts to move through the whole world. And not to say that everybody in the world is going to become a Christian, but that the preaching of Christ is going to so take hold with so many, and they are become light of the world, that actually culture gets better. The world actually gets better for having more and more Christians in it. I'll just point out that point of view, if if you hold that post-millennial point of view and you see the preaching of the word having that effect, first of all, you have a very optimistic view of the future, that the gospel is going to transform not just hearts for Christ, but even whole nations full of people that don't all believe in Christ, but they'll have better laws, they'll have better people, that the whole world will be better. So it's very optimistic. And secondly, I would say this, Cole, it causes us to engage with the culture. 
because we realize that it is the very preaching of the word that we've been commissioned to do that is going to affect this change. Well, let me flip it around and make a contrast. The pre-millennial view, which says Christ will come pre or before the thousand-year reign, basically says things will get worse and worse and worse and worse in the world until you hit seven years of tribulation and the Antichrist comes and things are horrible. And of course, Christ comes, sets things right, and then rules for a thousand years. Well, that view, uh, broadly speaking, it says that, you know what, you should expect things to get worse and worse and worse over time and lead right into a tribulation. And it's going to take the second coming of Christ to totally defeat evil in the world. And then Christ will reign. Well, that view, broadly speaking, tends to be a little more hostile to our culture, a little more pessimistic about the future of our world, of our culture. And it tends to cause people, again, I'm not speaking about individuals here, I'm just speaking broadly, kind of uh, tends to make us withdraw from the world. We're going to withdraw, hunker down, persevere, and just wait for the tribulation and the second coming of Christ. So great question. One obvious one would be the optimism of postmillennialism and a bit of a withdrawal or pessimism with premillennialism. What do you think, Cole? I think the div division between optimistic and pessimistic eschatology has a lot to do with the way you interface with the culture. If you think that the gospel is ultimately going to be successful, the prophecies of the nations walking in the light of the Lord or, you know, the glory of God covering the earth like the waters cover the seas. If you think mm -hmm. that that's going to be fulfilled in this world, pre-second mm -hmm. coming of Christ, then you certainly engage in the culture differently than if, if you believe that that's not going to happen. Right. It's interesting. Some, some camps I don't think are fully consistent in their eschatology. And part of this is because they may not think their eschatology is effective in their life right now. But if you have a very pessimistic eschatology, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. Uh, you do create a little bit of a separatist type mindset. If we can just right. stay pure, if we can just stay, you know, keep what we've got until the time runs out, then that that's what success looks like. Uh, of course, everybody's probably a bit of a mix between those two. It'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to find right. a total optimist and a total pessimist. The other couple of things that came to mind when I read this question is there are certain groups out there who take passages in Revelation and, and other places literally to the point that they believe once every people group has been evangelized, Jesus right. will come back. That the only mm -hmm. thing Jesus is waiting for is the gospel to be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. Um, I, I don't know that there's consensus exegetically that that's what those passages mean, but there's certainly not practical agreement on how we engage with culture that way. There are certain right. groups that, because of their eschatology, are very missions-driven. There are certain groups that are not as missions-driven. There are certain groups that are missions-driven because they're trying to bring back the second coming of Christ. There are groups that are very mm -hmm. missions-driven because they want to see the earth reformed into the kingdom of God in our midst. So, so these midst, right. motivations have different outcomes when it comes to the why of evangelism, and in some cases, doing evangelism at all. The, the other thing I thought about is there are some extreme versions of a sort of premillennialism or dispensationalism where certain events in the world 
cause people to say, okay, this is part of the end times. And uh, like I said, in extreme cases, to the extent that they will act like the end of the world is imminent, whether Mm -hmm. they're selling their possessions, liquidating their assets, not keeping a 401k, uh, adopting kind of a prepper mentality for the destruction of the world. There are, you know, every about 15 or 20 years, there's a group of people who they are so convinced that it is the end of the world now that current events and world events and geopolitics are showing them that it's the end of the world now, that the best thing to do is to head for the hills and dwell in the caves and basically get ready for the apocalypse. We call these doomsday preppers kind of in pop culture and other shows and things for them. Some, uh-huh. Sometimes they're not religiously motivated, but sometimes they are. Sometimes this belief that things are going to get worse and worse and worse, and we've just got to hold out until the rapture will motivate people to live like that's an imminent possibility. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that that's by any share a majority or uh, a huge percentage of premillennialists or dispensationalists. But in that view, when you get to the extreme, sometimes you see that as well. Right. I completely agree. Uh, so you're, I mean, for the average Christian, you're the fact that you do think there's an end times should affect how we behave now. As Peter says, given that the day of judgment will come, I'm paraphrasing, given that the day of judgment will come and this universe will burn up, how then should we live in lives of holiness and godliness? So that would be a really healthy way. But I took this question more as uh, engaging in the culture, and I, I would say withdrawal or enthusiastic engagement seem to be the two poles of how people's end times can uh, influence how they interact with the culture. Right. Our second question is a question about judgment that runs a little bit through the entire book of Revelation. Does anyone deserve eternal punishment? We've gotten to the point in Revelation where the books are open, the judgment occurs, and some go on to eternal life and some go on to eternal torment. This has been a question since the very beginning of the church. It's one of the probably the most common questions in church history. Is there really eternal conscious torment in hell, eternal separation from God? What is the nature of that? Why do people go there? This is a huge question. Uh, so take take any part of it that you want to. Yes, this is a big area. Let me try to put a little structure to it at the risk of leaving out some things. But the first observation I would make is you could ask this question the other way. And I would urge you to reframe it in your mind and ask, why does anyone deserve eternal life with God? Instead of saying, why does anyone deserve eternal punishment? And I I understand what the question's getting at, but before we get there, I just want to reframe this a little bit and say, actually, if you read the Bible, the bigger question is, how can anybody be saved? How can anyone be spared from separation from God eternally? So let me just start by saying that. I really want you to stop and reframe this question in your mind, because the Bible would actually ask it the other way. But why are we asking this question? And I think there are a couple of reasons. One is uh, the acknowledgement that we are eternal beings, is that we do have souls, all of us, all humans, you know, created in the image of God, as marred as it may be, but we are eternal beings. And that's part of why this becomes this idea of hell, this idea of eternity in torment in hell, or just eternity in hell itself, in whatever form you envision it is a a scriptural truth. 
it's very difficult to say, well, some of us are going to be eternal and some of us are not going to be eternal. So the question is well posed. We're not talking about why does someone go to prison for five years and someone doesn't go to prison for five years? We're talking about an eternal destiny. So it's a, it's a very good question. So the scripture is clear. Let me just start right there. There is absolutely nothing in the scripture that would make you doubt the fact that the Bible teaches that we each have an eternal destiny, some to an eternal destiny in the kingdom with God, and some in the, quote, lake of fire. And I'm just going to label that as hell. And that's just clear teaching throughout the whole Bible, all the way from Jesus in his judgment parables, talking about those being cast out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Revelation 20, maybe putting a little more flesh on those bones, you know, into the lake of fire and eternal torment. So first of all, this teaching is clear. So why do we ask this question? I think we ask this question in humans fundamentally. Here's my opinion, Cole, and you can add to this. But I think the reason this question keeps coming up is it violates our sense of proportionality as human mm -hmm. beings. And as humans, and I do, by the way, think this is a good thing. If you have a human being and you say, well, you littered on the sidewalk and someone else committed murder, we would obviously and rightly want some proportionality. Why? Because we judge the seriousness of the offense. Littering is not very serious. Killing people is way more serious. So we look at sin and I would argue, Cole, that we don't really understand the seriousness of sin. We do with the Hitlers of the world. And as a matter of fact, most of us might say, well, if anybody deserves eternal punishment, maybe it's Hitler. But, but most people, well, you're just an average sinner. So yeah, maybe you shouldn't go to heaven, but you really don't deserve that. So our sense of proportionality kicks in. So I'm going to stop there before I get to where do we usually go with that and say, do you think that's the primary reason or do you see other reasons that this question keeps coming up? I think that's spot on. I, I don't think that most people have exegetical problems with this, going to a text, for example, and thinking that the Bible doesn't teach this. In fact, if you get uh, scholars who don't believe, they're not really Christians, but they're you know historians of the Bible, they don't believe a lot of things that happen in the Bible are true. The Gospels are making things up and shaping these narratives. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Even among those people, a lot of times what you get is the thing that we can know about Jesus is that he was an apocalyptic prophet who was teaching that there is a real judgment coming and some will go on to eternal life and some will go to eternal damnation. So everybody's pretty confident that this is what is portrayed in the Bible. It's just a matter of how we square that. How do we stomach it? It's one of the we've talked about this in our difficult text episodes some texts are difficult because we don't know what they're saying. Some texts are difficult because we do know what they're saying, and it's very hard to square with the other attitudes and opinions that we have about the way the world works. I'd put this into that second category. Yeah. Well, and the interesting thing is once you get there and you say, you know, I'm really struggling with the proportionality, it seems to me, Cole, that people, broadly speaking, go two different directions to try to reconcile their own judgment. Now, again, I'm not trying to shut down conversation here, but I would simply point out when we take the clear teaching of Scripture and we say, I'm not sure I can really stomach that, so I'm going to I'm going to soften it. We have set ourselves up as the judge over 
the consequence and the seriousness of sin rather than God. Now, having said that, here's how I think people go. They go one of two directions. It seems to me we move toward annihilationism, which that's the doctrine that uh, if you are consigned to hell, what that really means is you cease to exist. Or after some period of time, there are many flavors of this, you cease to exist. In other words, it says, well, I can't really tolerate eternal punishment, so I'm going to shorten it and say God obliterates you. In other words, you're not really an eternal being, that God terminates you so that you at least don't suffer anymore, you cease to exist. That's the idea of annihilationism, and it's a way to, to kind of sidestep the whole eternal punishment thing. The other direction people go is, well, no, we are eternal beings, but boy, I'm really struggling with the eternal punishment. And you go something like a la Rob Bell, the whole love wins. And if you remember that, that was a pretty blatant attempt to say, yes, you are an eternal being, but once you go to hell and it's really bad, that over time, God's love for you will win you over. And there's sort of a shuttle bus that goes every day from hell to heaven. And eventually everybody in hell will say, you know what? I was so wrong about this. I really am going to submit to God. Great. Jump on the shuttle. We'll take you to heaven. So essentially, in one form or another, everybody will eventually be saved. The typical doctrine of this is called universalism. One way or another, sooner or later, everybody ends up in heaven. So you either get annihilationism, you know, you don't have to stay in hell forever, you cease to exist, or some kind of universalism that says sooner or later, you also get to go to heaven. So I would just say that seems to me, Cole, the way, if you're going to soften this doctrine, you usually go one of those two directions. Yeah, I think if you look at it as a contrast, if 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 the doctrine of hell offends our sense of proportionality, then to make things equal, what you have to do is you have, you actually have to increase our view of the depth and uh, the uh, offense of sin against a holy God mm-hmm. so that it can meet eternal punishment. Or you have to bring the punishment down to where right. it is a just payment for sins that are not that serious. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I would say both of those are attempts in some way or another to bring the punishment down to a place where it seems to fit the crime. I think on the other hand, what the biblical authors are doing is trying to impress upon us the seriousness of sin and the offense of sin. So think about a verse that a lot of people know, uh, but Sometimes we subtly don't apply it in our theology as Romans 6.23. The mm-hmm. wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. One sin, the consequence is death, eternal death. Well, you know, that's hard to stomach for little bitty sins. And I think our, mm-hmm. our compassion, our, quote, empathy sometimes leads us to believe that if it were us, we would not punish someone for all eternity uh, just for doing something small like breaking God's law. 
The other part of this, though, is sin is not always committed against us. In fact, it's it's usually when sin is committed against us that we start to get a sense that evil people need to be punished. But all sin right. is against God. And because God, so the argument goes, since God is an infinite being, since God is infinitely good, since God uh, is in, infinitely self-sufficient, has given us life, rebelling against him, sinning against him requires an eternal punishment. I don't know that that argument is the strongest argument, but you certainly hear people say that a lot in an attempt, like I said, to help us realize the scale of sin, the depth of uh, the offense of sin, so that it can meet the punishment. What do you think about that argument? Yes, I, I agree with you completely. And let me give an analogy. It's not perfect, but I'm going to argue this, that that what you just said is true is we fail to appreciate the magnitude of an eternal, holy, truly good God and how uh, the the marring of sin. But I will say that we actually do understand this a little bit. And in our world, here would be an example. If someone murdered a pedophile, or fill in the blank with someone you think is, is reprehensible. I mean, this is that uh, serious Dexter, isn't it? He was a a serial killer, but it was a very popular series because, well, he really only killed people that deserve to be killed, you know, right. bad guys. All right. So someone murders a pedophile. And now let me just go to the extreme. God forbid someone murders a Girl Scout that comes to the door, an innocent little child. Would you say those two murders are the same? And we would say, no. Well, why not? Now, that's interesting. Why not? They're both murders. They both cut a life short. Well, but one person deserve was better than another person. One person mm -hmm. had more merit than another. So all I'm saying by analogy is we ought to understand the argument that you just made, that a sin against a holy, holy God is mm -hmm. far more serious than a sin against you or me, because uh, mm -hmm. we're so imperfect. So I'm simply saying, if we stopped and think about it a little bit, that actually makes a lot more sense, even in the way we think let alone in the way God thinks. Yeah, those, that's a helpful metaphor to recalibrate our sense of proportion when it comes to sin and punishment. The Bible is not shy of speaking of death being the punishment for sin. In fact, this is the key to several of the difficult texts in the Old Testament. You have these groups of people in the Old Testament who are killed, whether it's in the book of Joshua or other places, the Israelites come into the land of Canaan. They kill all the men, women, and children in the land in certain cities. Mm -hmm. And this offends our sense of justice. This is a war crime. This is a genocide. You hear that talk right. about a lot. Uh -huh. Well, the, I don't want to take away the fact that these are difficult texts. Uh, and and uh, these are difficult things to stomach. But I, I do want to point out that if the Bible is true in what it says, that we all deserve death for our sins. We and those people are not that different in our standing before God. Now, we do believe that God is going to sort things out in eternity the way that is just, the way that God sees fit. Uh, but the way that things are sorted out in this present world, we don't always understand, doesn't always seem just to us. But if right. we understand that we are all sinful, there is no good person, there is no bad thing happening to a good person— we right. are all uh, standing before God with a guilty conviction. It helps us to understand why that might happen to people. And it gives us a, a sense of what we might deserve 
if we were in a different set of circumstances. And what a gracious gift it is from God. The free gift of God is eternal life, not just eternal life in eternity, but eternal life starting now. We will die. The cause may be different. We will right. die unless Jesus comes back. Um, and we hope to do that in a way, you know, surrounded by family and saying our goodbyes. But we're not guaranteed that. Right. Uh, we may even die a painful death. But we are guaranteed that if we trust in Christ, we'll be raised up and have eternal life with him, as opposed to the second death, which is the eternal separation from God. So <clears throat> there are all kinds of ways to approach this to see that the Bible is very clear that the wages of sin is death, death mm -hmm. now and death later, and that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, which is death now, maybe, but life later. And that everyone can partake of that. Anybody who believes in him can partake of that. So we we don't believe that it's a temporary thing. We don't believe that it's annihilation. We don't believe that this is all just kind of made up and the Bible doesn't teach this. But we do believe in the very real and open promise that anyone who believes will have eternal life no matter what happens to them here. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.